going to actually start at Romans chapter 8, verse 29, excuse me, 28, because of how it fits with the rest of the text. Uh, I think you'll understand why I'm doing this once I get into the message. Hear now this word. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him? also freely give us all things. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's look to the Lord again in prayer. Our Father... We come to you now in this portion of our worship to humbly ask you to abundantly bless the proclamation of your word with the power of the Holy Spirit. And Father, we do understand that true preaching is supernatural. It is that which is produced by the Spirit working in the preacher, but also working in those who hear that proclamation. And Father, our desire is that the Holy Spirit would so bless this message that we would truly be fed, that we would truly be blessed, and that we would truly be changed 
by the proclamation of your holy word. Father, we ask that you would do this, not only for our sake, we who are your people, but we ask that you would do it to bring glory to yourself. Father, we understand that we are sinners and that we need to be changed. So, Father, please, work within each one of us. May it be that no one would leave this place today unchanged by the proclamation of your word. Lord, if there's anybody here who is outside of Christ, speak to them. Draw such a one to yourself. Father, if there's one who has backslidden, draw such a one back to yourself. And Lord, for those who continue to be strong in the faith, we pray you would encourage them. We pray these things in faith and in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. During the days of the horse and buggy, there was a man traveling way up north during the winter, and he needed to cross a frozen river to continue his journey. But he was reluctant to walk across that river for fear that he would break through the ice and die a cold, watery death. The local people assured him there was no danger, but he was terrified of trying to walk across that frozen river. But he had to continue on his journey, and so he decided to crawl across that river. He carefully planted one foot, I should say one knee, and then a hand going back and forth as he crawled very slowly, listening for any possible cracks in the ice. He was about halfway across when he was startled by a sound off in the distance. He looked up and he saw a man coming toward him, driving a wagon with a team of horses. When the wagon got up to him and passed him, he looked and noticed that the wagon was carrying a huge load of iron. The man realized how foolish he had been. He had been safe all along. He had been safe all along. So he got up and he started to walk confidently across that frozen river. And because he was relieved of the fear of breaking through the ice, instead of crawling at a slow pace, he walked and made rapid progress. 
Many believers are like that traveler. They do not realize how secure they are in Christ, and so they become fearful of displeasing God and facing His anger. As a result, they find it difficult to progress in their Christian life. Now, I have found that those who have embraced Arminian theology are particularly susceptible of this. But I can assure you that even within our Reformed churches, perhaps even here today, there are those who struggle with that sense of security that they should have in Christ. Paul deals with this problem. See, we need to understand that we also, as those who hold to the Reformed faith, are also susceptible to feelings of insecurity because we, like all believers, are prone to sin, which we fear may cut us off from the love of God. That's what Paul deals with this in this section that we just read. In this passage, Paul gives us five reasons for the security of God's elect. In verse 31, he points out that in Christ there is no opposition. In verse 32, that in Christ there is no deprivation. In verse 33, there is no accusation. In verse 34, there is no condemnation. And finally, in verses 35 to 39, in Christ, there is no separation from God's love. Modern Catechism, question 80, asks this. Can true believers be infallibly assured that they are in the estate of grace and that they shall persevere therein unto salvation? I'm just going to summarize the answer. It's yes. But I want you to listen to this. This is Lauderdale Catechism, question 89, excuse me, 81, and the following answer. Are all true believers at all times assured of their present being in the estate of grace and that they shall be saved? The answer is assurance of grace and salvation, not being of the essence of faith. True believers may wait long before they obtain it. And after the enjoyment thereof, may have it weakened and intermitted throughout manifold distempers, sins, temptations, and desertions. Yet they are never left without such a present and support of the Spirit of God as keeps them from sinking into utter despair. Why is this so important? Those who framed our standards understood the struggle that even those who hold to the sovereignty of God and salvation can still struggle 
with this matter of the assurance of salvation. And so we come to the first point that Paul makes. He says in verse 31 that there is no opposition in Christ. Listen to these words again. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, when he asks that first question, he is asking what conclusions should be drawn based on the preceding verses. What's the conclusion that we should draw? These things refers to what we just read in verses 29 and 30, that God foreknew us, that He predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He called us, that He justified us, He is sanctifying us. You know, a lot of times it looks like Paul left something out when he says, He also justified, and whom He justified, these He also glorified. He said, why didn't He say those He justified, He also sanctified? Well, He did when He talked about being conformed to the image of Christ. And then it's interesting, at the end of verse 30, these he also glorified. It's not unusual in the Bible to express the certainty of something that is yet to take place as though it already happened. And that's exactly what we see here. But then we go on to this second question in verse 31. He says, if God is for us, he doesn't, if perhaps God is for us, the sense here, since God is for us, since God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul here makes a series of what we call rhetorical questions. These questions are designed to make emphatic insertions. When he says here, since God is for us, who can be against us? He says, who? He's saying, no one, absolutely, absolutely no one can be against us. That's his point. Now, Paul here is not suggesting that Christians do not actually have opponents. So you're going to have to listen to me carefully, make sure you're not going to read too much into this idea that in Christ there is no opposition. There's a sense in which that's true. There's also in such we recognize we as God's people have foes. Um, you know, Paul himself was frequently opposed. He was jailed. Someone said every place Paul went, he either had a revival or a, he got thrown in jail. And, um, he was stoned at Lystra. Um, he was flogged. Um, and in Second Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28, he lists several of his hardships for having suffered for Christ. Psalm 118.6 reads, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? When we first got married, my wife and I first got married, we had a little Pomeranian, a little black Pomeranian. 
One time, Dory and I were out in our front yard doing some yard work, and Nika was right there, right near us, and we didn't realize she had wandered off. So I'm doing some work. I don't know if I was raking up leaves or what it was, but all of a sudden I look up, and I see Nika making a beeline toward me. Her little ears were down, and I'm looking at her coming, charging toward me, and I realized there was a big, burly, brown chow chasing her. And Nika came right up to my feet, flipped around, and started barking and scolding at that chow. And the chow flipped around and ran off. You see, Nika knew I wasn't going to let anything happen to her. She had confidence that she did not need to fear that chow. I have listed here in my sermon notes several commentators who agree that Paul here is not actually saying that we have no enemies, but rather that they cannot stand against us. What that means is that we can be bold in the face of opposition. And I think most of you know, if things continue in our country the way it's going, we probably are going to be facing some persecution. William Plummer and also Charles Hodge believe that what Paul here is referring to is our salvation. And so William Plummer translates it, or paraphrases it, who can hinder our salvation? I believe that's correct. He's talking about those enemies that might tend to draw us away from Christ. But if you're one of God's elect, that ain't going to happen. I want you to notice that in verse 37, Paul says this, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. That's why we do not need to fear our enemies. But not only is there no opposition in Christ, in verse 32, Paul points out that in Christ there is no deprivation. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The great demonstration that God is for you is that he did not spare his own son. Meaning, of course, that he did not spare his son from suffering and death on the cross. Paul actually placed a little tiny word for emphasis that I don't know if there's any translation that does it, but verse 32 has the sense of he indeed, he indeed did not spare his own son. You see, the giving of his son for you and for me is not only the evidence that he is for us, 
It gives us the confidence that he will give us everything that we need for our sanctification. See, he's moving from the greater to the lesser. If God did this great work through his son for you, why would you think that he's not going to provide for you what you need as you advance in your Christian life? That's the apostle's point. Now, we do have here the future tense. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Paul here is not talking about the eternal state or someplace way off in the future. His point is that God will supply everything you need as you need it in your Christian life. From here forward, you could say. And the phrase, with Christ, means that God gave Jesus to you along with freely given, giving you all things. Think about that. He gave you Christ. And he's given you all things. I don't know about you, but that sure gives me a whole sense of, a whole lot of security. And so we would understand that the giving of Christ in all things is evidence that God is for you and that no one can stand against you to rob you of your salvation. So Paul makes it abundantly clear, yes, that in Christ there is no opposition. In Christ there, there is no deprivation. But then he goes on and says that in Christ there is no accusation. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Again, this is one of those rhetorical questions. And Paul here is making an emphatic assertion, and he is saying that there is no one who shall bring a charge against God's elect. Now, on the surface, that sounds, what? Are there not the enemies of God's people who bring charges against us? Um, yeah. This is a legal term that we find here, not to bring a charge against God's elect. The point is not that no one would dare bring a charge against us, but rather that all charges are thrown out of God's court. That's the point. All those charges are thrown out of God's court. I don't know if, I'm probably dating myself, but do you know what President Reagan's nickname was? The Teflon president. Does anybody remember that? The, te the Teflon president. Why was he nicknamed the Teflon president? It's because the attacks of his critics would just slide right off of him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it's as though God has given you a judicial coating of Teflon. Now, we understand 
from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 through 28, 29 actually, that God did not elect his people because there was anything in them that God said or saw in us. That said, oh, yeah, I want to elect that person. This is what Paul, Paul wrote. That God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame, to put to shame the things that are mighty, the base things of the world. You do realize he's talking about us here, right? The base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, here it is, that no flesh should glory in his presence. The doctrine of election should humble you. I don't know of anything that's more inconsistent than an arrogant Calvinist. Think about it. An arrogant Calvinist. And guess what? I've met a few. I'm afraid maybe that character has characterized me some. Hopefully not. Rejoice that you were not elected because of any merit on your part. And that means that no merit on your part keeps you as one of God's elect. Now, the futility of bringing charges against God's elect is declared in the very next verse where Paul says, it is God who justifies. That's a legal term. The idea here is God has judicially declared you to be just as righteous as his son, the Lord Jesus. You are declared righteous because the demands of divine justice have been satisfied in Christ's death and also by his righteousness, Christ's righteousness being imputed to you. Back in the, the days of the pioneers, if a man was traveling out on the Great Plains and he saw a fire off in the distance, he knew there was no way he was going to be able to outrun that fire even if he was riding the fastest horse in the county. He knew it wasn't going to, he knew eventually it'd catch up to him. So what would he do? When a man saw one of those prairie fires, he would actually start a very controlled fire at his feet. He would let that fire spread out until he could step into it. And if he had a horse, he'd let it spread out until he and the horse could step there. And while he stood in that burned-out area, the main fire would go around him, and therefore he would not get burned. The man knew he was safe. He knew he was safe because he stood where the fire had already been. You are secure in Christ. You are safe in Christ because if you're a believer, you stand where the fiery wrath of God has already been.
Now, there's a next logical sequence here. Because there is no accusation in Christ, there is no condemnation in Christ. Look at verse 34. Who is he who condemns? And once again, Paul is asserting that there's no one who can, can condemn God's elect. Who is he who contends? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. <clears throat> Here Paul presents four reasons to support his claim that no one can condemn his elect, that no one can condemn you as a believer. Notice the first thing he points out. It is Christ who died. He makes this emphatic assertion that no one can condemn his elect because of Christ's death. Paul is arguing that Christ's death removed all grounds of condemnation. This means that his death fully satisfied the demands of divine justice that required your punishment. And now let's think back to the very first Passover. The blood in the Jewish homes has been applied to the lintel and the doorposts. That night, the death angel is going through Egypt. And the cries, the moaning, the mourning of the firstborn of the Egyptians is being heard by the Jewish people. And let's suppose that there's two little boys in two different Jewish homes. And in one home, the little boy is the little Jewish boy is absolutely confident that the death angel will not reach him. But in the other home, the little boy is terrified. He is unsure about whether or not the death angel is going to reach him. He's the firstborn of the family, just like the other little boy. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that little boy that has doubts about whether or not the death angel is going to get to him any less secure than the little boy in the other home? Is he any less secure? The answer is no. Why is that Jewish boy, who's the firstborn of his family, why is it that we know that he's safe, even though he has doubts about his safety? It's because the blood has been applied. The blood has been applied. And if the blood has been applied to you, whether you have doubts about anything else, that's not going to change the fact that you are secure in Christ. The next item that Paul puts before us in this text 
he says, it is Christ who died and then, and furthermore, also risen. And furthermore, also risen. I'm going to read this from Charles Hodge, and then I'm probably going to feel like I need to make some comments. But this is what Charles Hodge wrote in his commentary on Romans. He said, the resurrection of Christ as the evidence of the sacrifice of his death being accepted and the validity of all his claims is a much more decisive proof of the security of all who trust in him than his death could be. Now, that might seem surprising. I don't believe that Dr. Hodge in any way is minimizing the importance of the sacrifice of Christ in his death. I think all he's seeking to do is to point out the importance of connecting our security with the resurrection. You may recall that early in the book, Paul said that Christ was raised for our justification. But he moves from our Savior's death and his resurrection to his exaltation. Know what's next, what's written next. Who is even at the right hand of God. Who is even at the right hand of God. That means that your Savior shares the throne with his Father. He has universal dominion. We know that from Matthew 28, 18. Now we understand that as your prophet, he reveals the will of God to you for your salvation. As your priest, he has provided salvation through the sacrifice of himself. And as your king, he sovereignly saves you. He sovereignly saves you. I want you to let this sink in. The one who has all power, all authority in heaven and in earth is the author and finisher of your faith. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this one, the exalted Son of God, seated at the right hand of God the Father. is the one who is the author and finisher of your faith. What security. But then he goes on. He adds, who also makes intercession for us. Who also makes intercession for us. This is the climax of those four reasons for why believers are not condemned. Christ continually presents his atoning work for his people to the Father. Hebrews 7.25 reads, New King James, Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, here it is, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Your, sa your Savior is interceding for you. That's why. You are eternally secured because he ever lives to intercede for you. Now we move to the next section, starting with verse 35. 
But Paul makes it clear that in Christ, there is no separation from God's love. We have here another question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? His point is, no one and nothing. No one or nothing. I remember one time hearing a devotional on this same text. And the man was saying, okay, so what's it going to be? What's going to separate you from the love of God? Is it going to be the tribulation or maybe the distress that's going to separate you? Is it going to be the persecution? And I'm going, he doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. Paul isn't suggesting that any one of those could actually separate us from the love of Christ. He makes that clear as you move through the text. One of the things that's interesting is when he adds here in verse 35, he says, or famine. Now, he has talked about enemies. He has talked about persecution um, and, and those kind of things. But here he's making it clear he is not limiting what he's saying to just persecution. There is a difficulty for us going through a difficulty to believe that that difficulty might actually be hindering our personal relationship with God. You see, your afflictions may seem like a gulf that separates you from your Savior's love, but they are actually part of the means by which He demonstrates His love. Think this through. Think this through. Notice verse 37. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Why does Paul interject the love of Christ at this point? Because he wants us to understand that Christ's love for us is so intense that we will be more than conquerors over all these things. Do you believe that? So Paul has that question, as I already pointed out. He's saying here that no one and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. But then he goes on to verse 36. There's a quotation here in verse 36. It's from Psalm 44:22. <laughs> and what that shows is the persecution of God's people is not a New Testament doctrine. Also in the Old Testament, God's people under both the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant were persecuted. But here are the reasons. Here are the three, three things regarding the persecution of God's elect that we see in Psalm 4422. First of all, the reason for our persecution, for your sake, for the Lord's sake. See, the elect are persecuted because they hate God. Because they hate God, they hate his people. Then you have the relentlessness of their persecution, expressed in those words, killed all day long. It's relentless. Then finally, the regard of their persecutors toward them. How do our persecutors regard us? 
as sheep for the slaughter. As sheep for the slaughter. But I love the way Paul goes on. Because he presents to us his persuasion in these matters. Verse 38. For I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height or depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul here lists several things that he is persuaded cannot separate us from his love or the Father's love. But then he adds that all-inclusive phrase, nor any other created thing. Nothing. Nothing. The Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco was opened on May 28, 1937. It was completed at the cost of $77 million, and the construction took four years to complete. During the construction of the first part of the bridge, no safety devices were used, and 23 men fell to their death in the waters below. In the construction of the second part of the bridge, it was decided to install the largest safety net in the world, even though the cost amounted to $130,000. It spared the lives of at least 19 men who fell into it without injury. But something else very significant happened. The work on the second half of the bridge went a lot faster. Estimated 15 to 25 percent. Why did it go so much faster? Because the men were relieved of the fear of falling. You see, the knowledge that they were safe left them free to devote their energies to the tasks at hand. How is it with you this morning? Has the safety of knowing that you are secure in Christ allowed you to devote yourself to your Christian duties? Perhaps you are fearful that you became that when you became a Christian, you were actually just too wicked for God to save you. I've met people like that. There may be a sin that you struggle with, and you're fearful that it has cut you off from your Savior's love. The Lord does not want you to live in that kind of fear. If you have truly trusted in Christ, and repented of your sins, then you are one of God's elect, and you are abundantly secure. You are abundantly secure because in Christ there is no opposition, in Christ there is no deprivation. In Christ, there is no accusation. In Christ, there is no condemnation. And in Christ, there is no separation.
from his love or the love of your heavenly father. As you partake of this holy meal, may the Lord overwhelm you with a sense of your security so that you will intensely love him, faithfully obey him and diligently serve him all to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray. Our Father, how we rejoice that we can know as your people that we are abundantly secure. And Father, may we Anytime we might doubt that, look steadfastly to Christ. For we know that our security is in Him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.